Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Okay, well, usually I start by saying, welcome, welcome, welcome. But today I'm going to start by saying, welcome. And my guest is laughing because she knows why I said, said it that way. You want to try, give it a, give us a, give us a song, love. Give us a song. Uh, I was just thinking of like Fiddler on the Roof. You know, yeah, because we'll, we'll that's kind in. of how you greeted me. Yeah, yeah. A little fiddler action. Uh, well, you do. We're new I'm friends. Blanking but... on my, <laughs> I'm blanking on my musical theater. That one's no, cabaret. I've been doing a lot of Irish accents lately with my kids when I read them a bedtime story. So it reminds me of the Scottish mother I played in The Music Man in high school. You were in The Music Man? Oh, isn't that a great, great play? The first, the first performance of it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then it went downhill from there. I played it for a year in the- um, Who were you, by the way? I was one of the, uh, it, it, was, it was one of the first jobs I had. Uh, and we did it for an entire year. We visited, the, the minimum age of our audience was I think 93. <laughs> but, I bet uh, they pinched your little cheeks. <laughs> they thought I was cute, but I, I, there were some things that I didn't find great about the troupe. So I began to do these little sort of subtle protests. Well, they were kind of, what, what do you call it when it's like uh, pa passive, passive, passive aggressive. aggressive. Yeah, passive aggressive <laughs> protest for, and uh, it was my own form of like protest, but it, it just, it, you know, one of which was not, not washing my costume. So I think that was just. <laughs> Oh, just, that's a really nasty passive aggressive move, but, man. But here, in in a way, it was effective. a lot on the in, in, on the stage. <laughs> Come do, on, but you know something? When you're as part of the quartet, it eventually became the trio and me. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wanted to stand next to me. I can't so wait, believe... you were part of the barbershop quartet. I was, yeah. yeah. Uh, what part? What voice part did you sing? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I mean, I was a tenor. I had decent range. Okay, I could hit. Um, like a G or an A above middle C at that point. Good night, ladies. <laughs> yeah. na, 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 na. We're going to leave you now. Okay, listen, this is not about you, darling. <laughs> I know we're never going to get through 20 chapters. I know, I'm not used to being interviewed, Garrett Corey. What can I tell you? Okay, so I got to introduce you and I also have to exhort the audience to, uh, if, if they like the show, hit subscribe, leave us a review, comments on iTunes, blah, blah, blah. But I want to tell you who our guest like is. Button. Smash the like button. There you go. There you go. Um, you you really should be a co-host. Like when my dad can't make it, you should just come on in and we'll do this uh, on a regular basis. So our guest today is a 20-year veteran of local, national, international newsrooms where she's covered the intersection of politics and business around the world. She and I actually have a lot in common, her background, um, not in the following regard, but in a lot of other personal regards. Her work has appeared in Yahoo Finance, USA Today, South China Morning Post, and Stansbury Research. She's appeared on Fox and CBS Radio and Television. Her work's taken her to five continents, including seven years covering US-China relations while serving as a White House correspondent for China Global Television Network. When she And by the way, I didn't realize that you were actually president of the White House 
Foreign Correspondence Group. Yeah, so that, uh, right, briefly. I, that yeah, was a coup. Yeah. That was, was quite uh, a coup. <laughs> it was quite a coup. Um, and uh, it was, so serving as White House correspondent for China Global Television Network when uh, it, during the rise of Xi Jinping, so it was a critical time. Uh, yeah. She's accompanied uh, President Barack Obama to Brazil, traveled with President Donald Trump to China in 2017, interviewed former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, former presidential candidates John Kerry, John Edwards, John McCain, Mitt Romney, as well as Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And our guest is now now published author. Is it official yet? Yeah, it's totally, totally official. We are it's talking right now. Um, it has not even been a week and it just feels it feels really good. It tickles, right? Yeah. Um, and it's we'll called Crossing the Divide, which we'll discuss at great length today. Uh, did I mention your name yet? I don't think I've mentioned. No, your name. I'm a nameless. I'm not faceless, but I'm a nameless individual. You're also a nameless, faceless individual who apparently doesn't sleep. How do you fit so much in <laughs> Jessica Stone? Her name is Jessica Stone, my friend, my mishpacha. How are you? You must be tired <laughs> because you've done a great deal, traveled a lot, seen a lot. Seriously, though, how are you? I'm great. And it's so great to be here. I have been so looking forward to this. And my mom is like so excited. Come <laughs> on, your show. Oh, that's great. That's great. So actually, I would like to start by discussing the five people your book is dedicated to. Could you tell us why that was significant for you? Um, sure. My parents are a huge part of my story in, in relation to cross-cultural uh, learning because my mom is uh, a Catholic convert to Christianity, to evangelical Christianity, I should be more specific. Um, and my father was raised Jewish and uh, converted to evangelical Christianity. Um, and they raised me in such a way that I really felt like there was a lot of cultural and religious dissonance, but then also unity in terms of their spiritual beliefs. But they came from uh, New York, Long Island, um, have a really uh, close relationship with their immigrant roots and work ethic. Uh, my mom came from the blue collar side of town. My dad came from a little more white collar side of town. Um, they met at Hicksville High School in New York, and uh, which is the high school that Billy Joel did not graduate from. Um, <laughs> But uh, so that's like their vibe, you know, yeah. like just a lot of um, a lot of culture, a lot of access to ideas and talking about them and then um, and, and the immigrant roots. And that really shaped me because they did not raise me in that environment. They raised right. me in a lot of other environments. Um, and the reason I mention um, <clears throat> my husband is in many ways I was running from away from the kind of background my husband has. I never thought I would wind up with somebody who is, uh, you know, who's both sides of his family fought in the revolutionary, revolutionary war of this country and for whom my daughters can on both sides be considered daughters of the American revolution. I mean, that's just really American for me. Wow, yeah. um, and, uh, and yet he's a great yin to my yang, you know, he's steady, he's loving, he loves, uh, loves our girls. He's a great dad. He's a great um, partner in all of the decisions that we make. And he grew up with a very strong mom and dad uh, in a different part of the country in Southern Virginia, but still, you know, was uh, unbeknownst to me preparing to celebrate a strong woman and, uh, and be in partnership with her. And then our girls, uh, Charlotte and Jordan are five and three and oh my word, the older one is a uh, chip off the old block, meaning me. So we 
butt heads quite a bit, but I am so admiring of her physical and mental and emotional strength, albeit she falls apart a lot because she's five. Um, and I want her and my younger daughter, Jordan, to, to benefit from the uh, crazy things I've done, the things that we've learned, the people that both my husband and I have been fortunate to have in our lives. Um, I want them to have you know relationships with people all around the world and be able to couch surf um, whenever they want to go experience something new. I really believe that the sort of um, bohemian world traveler in me came from my parents and I definitely want to pass that yeah. along to them. Yeah, I like how you ended your bio at the uh, the end of the book where it, it was like having, um, having, I forgot exactly what the words that you used. Cross-cultural like conversations, I think. Around the like, world and, a, yes. and around the dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, I should tell, show you my dinner, but honestly, uh, the our dining room is a reminder of some of these really influential trips because I've got the photographs that I took because I, I was a still photographer and a writer and a videographer on these trips. That was how I made an extra buck. So I've got, you know, pictures of Afghan girls and Haiti prayer beads and uh, all kinds of things. So I don't know if they really pay that much attention because it's just always been there, but hopefully they will ask me one yeah, day if that yeah. was stuff there. Now, a little more about your parents. Uh, you, you, I don't want to skip the part about your parents moving to San Francisco, doing the whole yeah. hippie thing. You know, oh, yeah. During uh, free, the, the super My interesting. My mom people. always says we were hippies without drugs. Okay. Full disclosure. I don't know if I, 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 I am somewhat skeptical of that possibility, but she has never, never swayed from that. So, oh, mom, okay. I love you. We'll <laughs> Fair that. enough. But your dad did end up prescribing drugs, right? Ultimately, yeah. Yeah. Way <laughs> Sorry, down that was a trick question. <laughs> way down the, the pike there. Yeah. Um, so they went from went to Long Island out to yep. San Francisco, um, <laughs> hippies, uh, Jewish, Catholic, then became born uh, born again Christians. Mm -hmm. Dad went to med school and then somehow what was his residency in Mobile, Alabama? Like how did his med school and residency were in Mobile? He did undergrad at, at uh, San Francisco State. <clears throat> and that's where Jessica was born. Bouncing baby girl in Mobile. In Mobile. Alabama. I was actually born in Mobile. OK. All right. Yeah. Um, so your family moved around. So a bit. I'm a Southern belle, Corey. Can't you tell? Well, how old were you when you guys, did you move from Mobile to Michigan? Uh, yeah, but when I was seven, so I lived seven years in Mobile. So you had a, some formative years in yeah. Mobile, Alabama. Enough to make me ready to move. Do you say Southern belle, like with a, a twinkle in your eye? Cause like, you know, I, I have, I have come to understand that nobody, you know, none of these cultures are monolithic and I have definitely found things to appreciate, but there have been times in my life where I did not appreciate some of the things I experienced in Mobile, Alabama, yeah. and definitely was glad to move uh, away from Mobile, Alabama. That said, now when I run across people from the deep South, um, you know, it's a point of, of commonality. And I think they all often feel misunderstood by Yankees. So yeah. um, I try to be somebody who can decode that a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My brother and I moved from New York to New Jersey much, you know, like, I don't know, it was about a half hour, 45 minute drive. And yet, and a similar age that you were when you moved from Alabama to Michigan. But I have a distinct memory of my entire childhood feeling a little bit like an outsider. Like I was really, even though I was relatively young, I was six at the time, my brother was seven. I always felt like more of a New Yorker than a real Jersey hmm. kid. 
Isn't that huh. weird? Um, it because it, it was sort of part of our. Maybe it's because my parents so strongly identified as as New Yorkers. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I, and that might have been part of. Actually, that's a very good point. That might have been part of my story too, because um, yeah, they definitely didn't leave that completely behind. Although I'm not sure they put it out there too far. Yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. beginning years. And then, so, but then you moved from Michigan to a small town in, in Pennsylvania, like, yeah, and you were Amish country. It was specifically like a really wealthy, one of the wealthiest areas in the country, Michigan, to this small, yeah. you know, uh, culture shock. And that was, uh, that was high school already? Or how old were you at that? That point? was, yeah, that was high school. Um, I was, uh, I went from being <clears throat> a, a, a freshman in um, the Detroit suburbs where I could bike to the mall and um, yeah, everybody was kind of quasi rich and famous compared to what we moved to at least. Um, and uh, then I kind of went back in time moving to Amish country. Uh, but what a pleasure to meet people that have um, really their feet on the ground, hard work ethics. Not everybody goes to college. Um, people hunt people go to church. Uh, yeah, it, it just wasn't something I had been in, in Michigan quite the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And was it like, uh, your dad's jobs or opportunities that brought you? Yeah. To places? Yeah. Yeah. And he's got some gypsy in him for sure. Um, because <laughs> he would move jobs even when we weren't moving houses. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, yeah, I think he was trying to find out his, find his way. He did academic medicine. He did, uh, private practice. He did hospital work. Um, <clears throat> there's a bit of a, there might just be a little bit of a restlessness in all of us, uh, yeah. in our family. Yeah. Well, you certainly traveled about a great deal. Um, but that the Pennsylvania town was swimming in a smaller pond there. Um, you were able to discover some things that stayed with you for the rest of your life. Your love of theater, we discussed a little bit, uh, your confidence to be in front of people. And then this internship at the end of high school where, um, it, it was, uh, for, for, for news, right. It was broadcast news. Did I, Read that yeah, it was it was promoting a broadcast journalism seminar, okay. <clears throat> kind of how to get a job <clears throat> and doing some writing. Right. And it was right. my first time living by myself. Well, without my parents yeah. or without family um, for three months in Washington. And I just thought I'd hit the jackpot. Yeah. Yeah. And now it sounds like your idea about the news and objectives in terms of what you wanted to get out of the program were different than other, yeah. other participants in that, in the internship. Yeah. You know, the seminar I went to was very much about objective journalism. And that's something that I continue to believe is something we should strive for. I know that's not necessarily a popular or current way of thinking, since we have so much more of opinion uh, in journalism than we've ever had uh, in my lifetime, not way back, but certainly in my lifetime. Um, and I think, uh, you know, they were shaped by some political ideologies and some different uh, objectives. They wanted to put more journalists from their perspective out into the world. Um, and I sort of took the learning um, and the skill set and wasn't really politically completely aligned with their political ideology, but very much appreciated the people I got to meet um, and the access I had to newsmakers and to and the people that are now uh, some of whom leaders in their own countries or in their own states. Um, and uh, one of them is my best, one of my best friends. Uh, we still keep in touch and she's, um, yeah, she's a dear friend who still has a lot of Washington in her heart. 
too. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, why do you think that opinion has crept into the news segments as much as, is it because of the time horizons that have shortened or, or because there's opinion that butts up programming wise right up against the straight news or is, are the lines completely blurred? Like, why do you think that is? Well, I think some of it goes back to the nineties when I was doing this internship and the idea that there was all this unspoken bias in the mainstream press. Um, most of the writers of the major newspapers and the major broadcasters lived in big cities, um, were less religious, um, or at least less, less shaped by their religion overtly in terms of, of how they covered stories. Um, and there was this thinking that, that really uh, bore Fox News that we, we need to balance the, the scene. We need to put more people from the heartland into, in, into news making and into news stories because their issues are being ignored. And, um, and of course, then as Fox rose, other networks realized, oh, we can do more of this talking head stuff. And, uh, you know, MSNBC was going to initially be conservative. And then they realized, well, we can't really, that, that, that territory has kind of been staked out. CNN took the middle. Um, and we, over time, I think Roger Ailes' uh, brilliance with filling panels was, you know, you can fill a lot of airtime very cheaply with talking heads and you don't really have to tell a story. You don't have to give new information. You'd give a lot of analysis and it looks like news. Um, a lot of other channels have since done that. And now we're kind of having a reaction against that with a lot of the millennial focus news where um, you're getting into deeper ex explanations of, of ideas and why things happen. And I think that's really um, the strength of journalism. Um, it's not the strength always of television. and. I love TV for its immediacy and the pictures and the urgency, um, but I really love online and print journalism for its ability to explain and radio and podcasting for that. And I think that's what will help all of us be better informed uh, consumers of news and information and ultimately voters and parents and teachers and all of the other professions that we're in. Um, we can't do it just on a diet of cable news or of uh, broadcast news alone. Yeah. You know, we're getting a little bit off track of the bio, but I, I it's worth just pausing for a second. I, I've developed less and less patience for these sweeping pronouncements about the media, the media, this, the media, that when, even if you're talking about, you know, three or four major networks, that just doesn't cover it. You know, that doesn't, it, it, it's an oversimplification and a generalization to say the media does this and the media is this way. Because to your point, I mean, you worked for a media outlet that couldn't be lumped into the same um, the, the, the same judgments as, as we might make about Fox News or CNN or what have you. You mean or, CGTM? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing that uh, I, I totally agree with you. And I have plenty of members of my family who are uh, complicit in the use of the term, the media right in front of me. And I'd sometimes just say, you know, like, I am, I, I, I am, I am part of, of the media. You, know, you, <laughs> yeah. might, you might think that I'm one of the good guys, but um, yeah, I mean, that's, but that's the beauty of alternative media. And that's the beauty of more people doing media and content 
is that we, uh, we have so much we can consume. Um, I yeah. think really when people talk about the media, especially on the right, they're talking about cable and mainstream, you know, mainstream things that have the most eyeballs. Um, and um, there's, there's, there's myopia there, but there's myopia in humanity because we yeah. focus on what we're interested in. I, th I think the reality now though, is there's no one channel, there's no one outlet that garners a majority of eyes or even a plura plurality of eyes and ears. Right now, this, there's such a democratization of media. There's so many independent media outlets, some of my favorites. I've talked about plenty here, the Dispatch and the Bulwark. Uh, but you know, mm -hmm. to your point, there's millennial, uh, you see millennial faces that are, are doing good journalism and um, telling those stories, doing great investigative, how do you say it? Tell, say the word for me. Investigative. Thank you. Um, I don't know why I couldn't put those syllables together, but you know, Newsy is is yeah. uh, a, a channel that we tune into or Vox, you know, uh, has some great emerging journalists. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting off course here, but that that is a, a pet peeve of mine, you know, and Julie Mason certainly, I think would agree with me that there's really good journalism being done. Yeah. Um, now you had also grown up with a strong sense of your Christian faith, but also your Jewish heritage. So in, in, first, can you tell us a little bit about Binny Weinstein? <laughs> and thank you for saying her name correctly, because there's always an internal debate. Are you Weinstein or Weinstein, right? <laughs> but the New York Weinsteins are Weinsteins, um, at least my, my Weinsteins. Um, man, Benny was a force of nature. Uh, she was tiny. She was maybe four, two, four, mm. three, and yet she was the center of her basketball team in the Catskill <laughs> Mountains. That was a short team. Um, she came from Russian immigrants. Her father did not speak English. He spoke only Yiddish. He did not have an education. He farmed other people's land. So he was a sharecropper and he, and then during the winter when he couldn't farm, he, uh, like, uh, ran a, a guest house and they got to all stay in one room, um, and as his part of his pay. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't remember a lot about her mom, but I know that her mom was much younger than her dad. Uh, there wasn't a lot of love in the house. There were four kids and man, uh, Benny was Minnie for Mendel. Her, her, her birth name was Mendel. Everybody then called her Minnie and then her friends in, in, uh, later on called her Benny. I don't know how that evolution happened, but Benny was, uh, <clears throat> she, she made it to 98. Oh, wow. <clears throat> Only the last four months of her life were uh, not good. And she, uh, she did what it took to get ahead and, get, and, and really had such a, um, a drive to know, to learn, to understand, to travel. Uh, that was a huge motivator. She lied to get her education in New York City. She um, went to, I think it was Hood College for like a semester, got great grades. Uh, claiming to be a New York City resident because it was free at the time if you were. Um, and then somebody tipped somebody off and somebody came to her cousins and they said, oh, no, she's not. Yeah, she does. She's not related to us. And so she got busted. Then she decided she should become a nurse because that was a free education. She went to Bellevue Hospital in New York City to her nursing training. And come to find out, like these nurses from Bellevue have like a rep, like they're tough. 
especially yeah. when they went and went into the Navy, she got drafted to go in there, or she actually, she volunteered to go in the Navy um, as a nurse. She outprocessed the soldiers from Guam. She's got great pictures on the Island of Guam, these little black and whites with the white, you know, frilly edges in, in her Navy uh, uniform. And she never thought she was attractive, never thought she was beautiful, always thought that she should just be smart and, you know, and work hard. And, um, and I think I had a lot of that. I never saw myself as an attractive girl myself. And uh, I was just going to be the smart one. And um, so we had that in common. And uh, the, the really beautiful thing about her is she ra- she met my grandfather at a progressive party meeting in the 40s oh, in wow. New York City. So that would have been pretty progressive, pretty communist. She really thought there should be more help for the poor. Um, there should be free education. She was all about it. Um, and and she had, she had good reason to feel that way because of what she'd grown, grown up in. My grandfather came from money, came from uh, from business people. And so I think he was just more ideologically aligned with that. They both had served in the war. So they got married much later, I think well into their 30s, didn't have their kids until late 30s, um, mid to late 30s. And um, fast forward to my dad, you know, they both made their bar mitzvah and they, you know, they checked all the boxes with the temple and raising them the right way. They didn't, after their bar mitzvah, there wasn't a lot of temple going. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so my dad, uh, my dad wound up uh, many years later after quitting college and convincing his parents to drop him off at Woodstock. I have to note it because, <laughs> you know, that was just, you know, a bunch of kids having a good time and they totally bought it. Right. Um, he, uh, he traveled the world and, uh, but, and between high school and college, I guess he took a gap year and uh, he heard about Jesus the first time on Passover night walking home from a Passover Seder in Jerusalem. And that became part of leading him down this, oh, you know, there's people who have faith. It's, uh, it's related to my Jewish faith, but it's not the same thing. And I'm going to, you know, and I'm kind of missing this part of my life. I, I missed what I kind of had in the temple when I was little. Anyway, he was 18 by the time he became a Christian. And you, you know, this, these were days in the seventies where, you know, that you just didn't do that to your parents, especially when you're Jewish. And you know, this to be the case because you've done it yeah. <laughs> and they still talk to you. Well, that's <laughs> a big deal when they still talk to you. Yeah. His mom wasn't, was, uh, she flew out to try to stop him from get marrying my mother. And, um, she always denied that just for the record. She always denied <laughs> that. Um, and man, there, there are she... still things by the way that my parents, uh, when we recount the story and those, those days and months when I, after I told them I became a Christian, that they, they're at least a little softer about it. They'll. Yeah. I noticed saying, that in your episode with your dad. With Ron. Oh, you, yeah. Yeah. I know you remember it that way, but. <laughs> right. Right. But really it was kind of a tough time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, I just thought, you know, what spoke volumes to me is that even though she was, you know, very disturbed and distraught and didn't want, you know, him to think she thought he was making a mistake and was throwing his life away. She went, she kept in touch with him. She didn't, you know, sort of kick him out of the family. And that allowed me to have a a relationship with my grandmother. Uh, She wasn't the most, you know, affectionate mother, but she was very uh, supportive and um, involved in both my brother and I's lives and uh, really appreciate the influence she had on me because man she opened up a whole new world to me yeah 
Now, another thing about your your Christian the combination of Christian faith and Jewish heritage, uh, having this <clears throat> one foot in two very different worlds, as you put it, fundamentally set me up to be a better cross-cultural communicator and affirmed my profession as a journalist. How, how so? You're never quite comfortable in, e in either one of those camps, right? Because, you know, the, the, especially the Christians that I was around in the deep South would have been, were, were not that open to the Jewish part of me. Um, you know, their, their exposure to Jews was very limited. Um, they might have thought that Jewish people had something to do with Jesus's death. I, I'm not saying they did, but I'm just saying like that thought was out there. And of course the Jews killed Jesus. <laughs> he was Jewish. They were Jewish. You know? right. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean they killed him because he was a Jew, because he was Jewish um, <clears throat> or because he was a Christian even. <laughs> in any case, that's a, big that's a whole other debate. podcast. That's a whole other podcast. But yeah, so I, I never but but I never really uh, I, I, I kind of just went forward with my kind of Christian part for for most of my uh, childhood until I got to college in New York. And I had so many Jews, uh, you know, some some of them devout, most of them not. Um, I was just around a lot of New York Jewish culture, really. <clears throat> and that that kind of set me on a path to think, okay, like I should probably get to know this part of myself. And that that was definitely part of um, getting closer to my grandmother. But I do think that, yeah, you're you, you become more of an observer when you have some differences from the people around you. And, you know, you don't have instant community um, because, yeah, you have you have something you hold back a little bit. Yeah, um, I couldn't always hold it back because my last name kind of screamed Jewishness. <laughs> and that too was part of like always kind of reconciling. Yeah, but I'm not, you know, yeah, but I'm I'm a, I'm Jewish in heritage. I'm Jewish in ethnicity, but I'm not um, Jewish by faith. And um, and I love, you know, I love friends of mine who aren't Christians and who are still Jewish. Uh, and and so it, it's not an acceptance thing. But for me, um I didn't really want to be classified. I think that's what I'm kind of driving at there. And, yeah. and yet you have a, you have a name, you have a persona, especially when I was in college, I write in the book um, <clears throat> that there were two other people with my first and last name combination. I got one of their bank accounts at one point, <laughs> right. their statement. I mean, not their account, their statement. It's like, man, I don't want to be her. You know, <laughs> um, I got like at least $200 in my bank account. She got 25. Um yeah. You know, so just uh, really coming to grips with, wow, like people are going to assume something about me because of this name I have. And 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 are they going to get a chance to know me and know that I'm different than maybe what they assumed? So anytime right. you're in that position, right, you're you can you you uh, have some of the beginnings of the skills to be around other people that are right. different. Yeah, it's this balancing act of being a resident alien somewhere and embracing that uniqueness, you know? Yeah. So, was the internship at, was it a, a TV station in Alsace-Lorraine? Um, yes. That, yes. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. In, in France. Yeah. Was and that, that was my other thing that kind of shaped the, the kind of cultural attraction I had was somehow Grandma Benny convinced me that everybody in our family takes French. Okay. Oh. So like they took it and then they dropped it like a semester later. Me, oh. somehow I got sold on the idea. Everybody takes it. So I'm going to take it. So I got to become fluent in it because I can't just do anything halfway. So I took it for, 
I mean, I took it up through college. I studied abroad in France. I wanted to become fluent in French. I have French friends. You seem like you're big on immersion. That that there were a oh, couple huge. chapters there. Like yeah, yeah, but I don't think that's really. I think most people that have traveled uh, quite a bit would probably agree that if you want to master a language, you just need to throw yourself into it. I'm convinced that I would actually be. I would have a chance of speaking some Chinese, which I'm terrible at, <laughs> if I just moved to China. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you, you know, I mean, and it's so it's it's alienated and isolated, and you're exhausted because your brain is like doing all kinds of contraptions in your head. But you learn, and you learn through social cues and cultural cues, and um, and people are people are kinder when they know you're like, wow, you got an uphill battle, you know. Yeah. So let me help you. You know, it's funny. My three of my best friends to this day are they're the three guys that we did four years of French class together in in high school, and we when we really bonded is the trip that we took to France when we were sophomores in high school. But two of the guys, Mark and Steve, they spent a semester in France and really that's where they really learned how to speak. And me and my friend Ira, we still memorize, we, we still remember a couple lines from, uh, you know, the Saint-Exupéry, the, the, oh yeah. The Je chasse les poules, les hommes chasse. <laughs> yes. I think it's over here somewhere. Didn't I pull it out the other day for you? Oh man. It's somewhere over here. Yeah, but those guys actually can speak, you know, at least enough to order a, a meal at a French restaurant. But well, I didn't even put in the book about the curveball I got studying in France. They set me up to set, I, I wound up staying with a Spanish family. Oh, oh. Uh, so I had to you, learn the, the, Spanish. Oh, that's to but you speak were to my family. <laughs> that doesn't make because. Are there Spanish speaking up in nor the northern no, France? No, it, it was just it's Strasbourg is a really you know it's a it's an industrial hub and and so the the mom wanted to come work there to perfect her French and oh yeah it was a whole it was a whole thing I, I was on loan to basically teach her English on top of her French but then I couldn't communicate with with her husband or her three boys because they didn't speak very much French so the grandmother and I would go through vocabulary as she was sneaking me little you know, like Clementines under the table because she wasn't supposed to feed me. <laughs> I mean, like Spanish, French, Spanish, French. So yeah, um, my Spanish isn't that great, but I do have fond memories of that grandmother. Yeah. And that that time was also where your career in broadcast journalism, specifically like around the world, international um, work really got locked in. Or, or was that something you had pretty clear? Uh, pretty no, clear yeah, I of? really didn't. I, I think it would have been so... If, if I'd stayed in France or continued to work in France instead of taking the advice of people around me in college and coming back and doing the local news thing, um, I always wonder what would have happened. It didn't, but, um, and I think I got a lot more economic, US economic coverage experience working in the Rust Belt cities in upstate New York, which was also very important to who I, and what I've, I've covered since. Your mother's mother is, is also has an interesting story. Uh, I, I won't, I don't want to give away the whole story or the whole lesson, but the opening of that of the lesson uh, from that chapter really resonates. Culture doesn't leave people when they leave the culture. Yeah, more and more taught me that. She's yeah. Swedish. Uh, she came over on a boat when she was 16. And there were so many things that she would, so many distinctly more and more things she would do growing up. Uh, and I thought they were just more and more. I didn't realize that some of them were also Swedish and some mm. of her uh, just uh, lack of interest in sort of being um, overtly super friendly, like Americans often are, um, was some of that we've, I've definitely seen, not from my Swedish family, because family is family, but um, from, from strangers who 
didn't know like, what the heck's this girl doing here when I would go to visit. Mm. Um, so I don't say that in condemnation of the Swedes because I really love my Swedish family, but I do think there's a little bit of a reticence culturally. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because they also have a lot of the influx of the North African migrants through the migration patterns of the last 10 years and, okay. and the horrible things that have driven people out of Northern Africa. Um, so they're set up for some really interesting dynamics um, in their cities with people of cultures and backgrounds that they just haven't, they, they maybe have encountered on trips, but haven't come to live in Sweden. Right, right. And your grandmother in particular, it sounds like she's, she evolved over time as well. That, um, you know, I, I think I alluded to before how she, she moved with you. Uh, oh, with your one family. more, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so she, yeah, she kind of stuck with us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Can you tell me an instance when your devotion to scripture and your prayer life helped you make a decision or in, affirm an important decision? Oh my gosh, I could never have sent myself to Afghanistan without, yeah, n- never. Uh, that was, I prayed for six months um, and got ready simultaneously because I thought, you know, at any point I can get ready. It, and uh, if, if God gives me the old, I, uh, I won't go through with it, but I, I spent a, a, a couple of, I don't know, maybe it was one or two months at least at the beginning of 2009, thinking about it, talking about it. Um, this was, you know, of course, after Obama's inauguration. So new president. You always get a review of the current military strategies. There was also a national election later that year um, in Afghanistan. I knew other people that were going, but in order for me to feel confident in going myself, particularly having never been in a war zone um, and not having anybody asking me to go to a war zone and telling me they would watch out for me, uh, I really had to know that um, I was ready to meet my maker. So I was definitely praying and reading and not talking too much about that struggle with anybody close to me. I didn't want to be swayed. Um, but, uh, I remember, and I I talk about this in crossing the divide reading Ruth one day and, um, I love Ruth, man. What a tough, tough little cookie. Um, she's, uh, but there's that passage where she, where she's told, um, I think by Naomi or her mother-in-law don't, go and, or no, by Boaz, excuse me, um, don't go in and glean in any other fields. And for me, that meant don't give up on journalism. Don't uh, stay the course. Um, I, you know, this is something that you're going to do. Uh, that might sound weird to, to some people and uh, so be it. But I, I do think that the, the lesson there for people who don't have uh, sort of a religious conviction is uh, a, uh, be willing to take huge risks for things you do believe in and be, um, be ready to meet your maker. If you're going to go into a war zone or a conflict zone, um, if you don't have confidence in where you're going to end up, it can be harder uh, to do that. Cause you know, I still paid a price. I still had PTSD. I still had major anger issues for years after I came back, but man, what a, what a, I, I still have friends from Afghanistan. I was on the phone with one of them the other day. WhatsApp's a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> what a, what a thing that would never have happened any other way. Yeah. You talk about that moment when you saw someone that you knew considered a friend on the cover of time and the picture made, made it seem as if he was, he was dead. Yeah. That sucked. 
I had just come back from a run. This was after I came back from Afghanistan. I was jogging and I was in an apartment with two other people at the time or a townhouse near the Marine barracks. So I would, I was kind of in the, I still felt like I was a little around military kind of folks. There was Marine barracks up here in Northern Virginia. And I come back and there it is like on the, you know, on the mat in front of the door. I'm like, Oh shit, he's dead. Yeah. I just talked to that guy, like, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, Thank goodness he wasn't. Right. Um, Right. But yeah. And they were some colorful characters, the Wisconsin national guard. (laughs) Colorful characters. <laughs> yeah, some interesting, uh, interesting, colorful characters. That's a good way to put it. Um, but I appreciate you talking about that because a lot of times, you know, I listen, I have friends who have the, the way they talk about um, their prayer life or, you know, it's like, well, God told me that, you know, to go to Kmart aisle 12 and blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, God's voice just doesn't speak to me that way. But yeah. to your point, there, it is remarkable how, because I, I do like a daily reading of, you know, I'm, I'm reading the Bible every day. It is remarkable how I'll be in this like arbitrary book or, you know, not often read book uh, that somehow it speaks on, on a particular issue that I've been grappling with. You know, mm-hmm. um, there was, uh, I, I was in, well, I don't need to go into that, but I was going to talk about a time that I was grappling with a particular issue, and I happened to come, I happened to get to Daniel three in my reading, mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> the CPAC last week is a Daniel three is good to visit if uh, if you want a, a real scriptural view of of what they think about some of the things that was going on at CPAC. But again, <laughs> we don't need to get into that. Um, I think your now, Facebook community knows what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I already got myself into trouble on that one, but uh, that's okay. That's good trouble. I, I'll get into that trouble all day, every day. If I'm, yeah. especially if I'm standing on the, the the you know solid, solid foundation of scripture, uh, I'm okay with that. Um, now, by the time you went to Haiti, after the terrible earthquake there, it seems like you had developed a portfolio of tools to ingratiate yourself into a new culture, to quickly develop new friendships, to get the lay of the land, to be able to just like to survive uh, and do your job. <laughs> what, what were some of those tools and practices that you had learned by that time? Um, I really learned that, every, that to tell everybody what you wanna do and people that can will try to help and people that can't will, t- will try to find you somebody who can help. Um, I, it was driving me absolutely up a wall to watch other people cover the immediate aftermath of that earthquake, um, especially speaking French and kind of having an affinity for French speaking or colonies even. I mean, obviously most people speak Creole in Haiti, but it was really like, it was just watching this going, I need to be there. Um, and, you know, so, some people have that sense about them, um, especially journalists. I got to cover it, you know? Um, and so part of it was just networking, asking, you know, where should I stay? How do I get there? And of course, this is this was the nice thing about it is it's you know it's a it's an easy flight um, to Port-au-Prince, and um, I had some of those French-speaking skills that could get me along at least with the upper echelon of, of Haitians, get me into the diplomatic doors. I had I had worked uh, through the military system in terms of um, having been an embedded journalist in Afghanistan for two months, and I kind of knew how to try to talk to the military. I knew how they were divided and, and who ran who. And that gives you a certain amount of ease and credibility when you're talking to the military who had responded. Uh, SOCOM, this Southern Command had responded to try to 
bring supplies to Haiti at the time. Um, and then I was also a sponsor of a child in Brazil at the time through Compassion International, but I had, was really familiar with Compassional International's ministry because I had been a sponsor for since I was 14. And um, once I realized they had a camp there and a school there, I thought, oh, what a great you know, opportunity to visit one of their, um, their facilities. It's not really a facility, their, their, um, their aid camps uh, on site. And so I, I called them up and, you know, how do you, so uh, really just a lot of phone calls, which is kind of the nature of journalism anyway, pulling the string, um, finding out the different stories that you can tell and, um, and connecting with somebody on the ground that can give you an idea what stories might um, not be being told. Um, and there was just a huge thirst in the news cycle for more information about that. And I, I want to even talk about all the different clients I assembled. I think I worked for the Catholic News Service who likes to you know, hear about anything going on. We were go I went down around Easter and the Chronicle of, of Philanthropy wanted to see how different aid groups were going. I mean, there's a remarkable amount of places you can write for if you're willing to to kind of seek them out uh, and and get their get them to pay attention to what you've got. I mean, that, not everybody can afford to send somebody. So when you're going, you know, telling them you're already going, you don't have to pay my travel expenses. Or you could could you pay this part of my travel expense is very appealing. That's interesting. That's a whole side of of journalism that not a lot of folks know uh, know about. That's but you're you're hustling. You know, you're you're doing. Oh man, I think that yeah yeah man. <laughs> What <laughs> hustling the logistics, hustling the clients, hustling the pitches to the clients. What do you what do you want? What can I do with you that can I can also repurpose for this client? And it's not directly compet competing, so that I can make sure that nobody's going to be, you know, angry at me because I'm working for the other team. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of hustle, but really rewarding. Um, it's it's interesting. It's I, I'm an adventure. I'm coming across a little bit of that right now. There's a few essays I've worked on and realizing that, you know, you have to be strategic in who you submit to and when you submit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you can't blast everybody. Right. Yeah. 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 The so. other thing is I took this really great um, seminar or class or something with um, at the national press center here um, about freelancing and some of the, I hadn't really done freelancing the way these people were doing freelancing. I was on a W-2. I was coming in on a schedule for, for different clients. And <clears throat> that's really different than coming up with the story, pitching it, selling it to a client, and then going and executing it and figuring out how much to charge and, and all of that. Um, there, there were other travel writers, and this was really even before a lot of the blogging and stuff where, or influencers. I mean, now you've got people who just travel the world, you know, taking pictures of themselves and writing about different places they visit. Um, and that's like an industry for the travel industry. But, um, but there was a couple of people who had done kind of what I was trying to do. And they gave me a lot of good tips about, about pitching and all of that. But you really had to kind of, you had to know your audience, you had to understand budgets. And um, I'm not sure I did all of those things, <laughs> but you throw enough at the wall and especially if you're early in on the ground, I mean, that's, that's some of the advantages, just being flexible enough to get there um, and then say, hey, I'm here. Do you want anything? Yeah. That, that, that's, a, a, that's hard to compete with. Yeah. <clears throat> I was surprised to read that after all your experience, both as a journalist and, and cross-culturally, 
you walked into the job at CCTV having studied no Chinese culture and no Chinese management ethos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really wanted a job. Uh, and I really liked working for them because I, I intellectually was really attracted to what they were interested in learning more about um, business and economic policy and political movements inside this country. Um, yeah, that was a that was kind of a, not the not the best decision, <laughs> that part of it. So how you talk about your mistakes. Um, yeah, I hadn't, I had, you know, especially management philosophy, right? Because it really came up against a lot of differences in in the way they manage compared to Western um, environments. And I, yeah, I wasn't really prepared for it. I wasn't, I mean, there was no way, you know, the other flip side of that, Corey, is as much as I didn't know, there was no way to know what I didn't know before I didn't know it, because there was a lot to not know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a lot to not know. And yeah. all of us were really going into uncharted waters. I mean, the Chinese were, all of the Westerners, the Middle Easterners, everybody that came in to put this thing together. It was a soup of culture and language and ethos and how, you know, this is the way to do it, except, you know, it's not, if you got to, you have to come up with a new way to do it. Yeah. It, it seems like it really came to a head later on. I mean, you, you had a good run there, so I don't want to just skim through it, but it seems like it really came to a head later on when, um, what was it? In, it was uh, late 2018. Oh, you mean the foreign agent registration act FARA. Exactly. Yeah. yeah FARA. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that, uh, so, I mean, look, you're, you're working for another country's media. So there's always going to be some tension between how you, you see your country and how they see your country and, and the stories that you do. Um, most of my time at CGTN was really, um, about explaining them to us and us to them for lack of a, a better construct and telling stories that had utility um, for both countries and really for all of North America. I did a lot in Canada. I loved that the Canadians were a great um, group to work with. They, have, they, they were accepting a lot of Chinese investment in their oil sands. I did a documentary. It was fascinating to learn how energy moves and, and the politics around it and the economics around it. Um, and, um, and so there were just, there were a lot of interesting questions they were asking. And that's one thing about the international media that I I feel like is a is a better opportunity for journalists who really want to understand big ideas, at least during the time that I was doing it. You're getting to tell stories that the American media isn't telling. Um, you know, it, 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 it's if you're not sitting on a set yelling at somebody uh, that's yeah. I mean, at the time, that's what constituted American cable news and a lot of American broadcast news. So. Um, you know, the Al Jazeera's and um, to some extent RT, even though there was plenty of conspiracy th th theories there, BBC, um, TRT World is the Turkish uh, uh, global channel that's in English. And then all the, the Chinese, the Japanese have like four or five different channels that are all in Japanese, but they send people over here. The Korean broadcasters, uh, the French have, you know, four or five different media outlets. Um, the Canadians have three or four or two. Um, some of which are French speaking, some of which are English speaking, which I found out later as I was working uh, with the foreign media at the White House. Uh, it, yeah, it's you, you, you get to take that outsider's lens to your own country and think about, okay, why is this happening in politics? Right. Why, why are these economic drivers happening? Um, why do we subsidize oil? Why do we subsidize corn? 
Um, do other people, do other countries do the same thing? You know, what's driving some of our trade policy? Um, those are those that that kind of way of approaching ideas and information was just really appealing to me. And um, I really, I still think that the way that um, international broadcasters approach news in that context is really powerful. Yeah, you know, I, I heard a story, and I'm going to completely bungle it, so I, I won't even try. But in some ways, you were a fish out of water. But the fish out of water then realizes that the fish was in water for its whole life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, folks who only are familiar with news here domestically, especially over the last 20 years or so, aren't don't have that literally, literally don't have that perspective that you do, having stepped out of that domestic environment and seen things literally from a different point of view, from a different part of the world, through the lens of a different culture. And therefore, the kinds of stories that you might be able to focus on, the way that stories are told, um, how to, you know, what kind of work you need to do in order to prepare, to prepare yeah. a good story. There's so much that you learn from seeing, seeing the world through the lens of other cultures. And you, you have, you know, uh, from-, from I appreciate you putting it that way, Corey, because I don't always think of it that way, you know, at the- at the time, working for an international network was not necessarily a sign of being a successful broadcast journalist. You know, if your if your mom and dad can't look at you on TV, like you know, where where have you landed? Even if you're making a decent paycheck and telling some great stories, um, but man, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so grateful for those the opportunity to do that, and um, and I think the quality of what we produced was much higher. And we started to attract, you know, American viewers to just who did want to want to look at some something that was different, that was a little more documentary style or longer format or more in depth uh, debating debate. I mean, what other <laughs> we had a shows on global poverty, <laughs> like nobody in the States is going to do that. Yeah. They might say they care about it, but they're not going to do a 30 minute special. Right. Right. Could you talk a little bit, you, you, you shared an experience in Shanghai and it, it wasn't simply cultural differences you were encountering. It seems like it was an entirely different worldview and way of thinking. Could you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I think you're talking about the, um, the relationship I had with Xiaoyan, my yeah. producer, translator, fixer, minder, yeah. um, young 20 something, um, gal. And, um, I think so, one of the things I've encountered with uh, young Chinese, particularly young Chinese I've met through CGTN, um, who of course have to be in very good standing with party politics to be working at a state-run television network, is um, th they are very dogmatic about and very nationalistic and they don't know all of the past of their own country's history. They certainly don't know um, if they're under 30, a lot about what happened in Tiananmen Square um, and the brutal killing of, of hundreds of thousands of students um, for standing up for democracy. Um, they, uh, they have a really um, no expectation of privacy. They're incredibly technologically competent. They do not question authority. Um, very, uh, very compliant, um, not a lot of critical thinking. 
Um, and this sounds really tough. I know to, to those of you listening, <laughs> this sounds really tough. Um, and yet these are some of the qualities that are coming out of the way that young Chinese are being educated. It's very by rote. Um, they're not being challenged to think their way around problems. I've met a lot of young Chinese who are way more educated than me. I mean, PhD, couple of master's degrees, and yet the common sense is really low. And you could definitely argue that that's the case with, you know, Westerners too, let's be honest. I mean, there are people who are incredibly brilliant and yet, you know, could get hit by a car because they don't know how to cross the street appropriately, right? Um, so I don't know that that's exclusive to something in the Chinese culture, but the elevation and the, the desire to learn is very much about, about academic education, not about common sense and critical thinking skills. Um, whereas, you know, in the West, there's this whole movement of liberal arts colleges and thinking and, um, and um, debating ideas, even that, that great books school, uh, St. John's College is an example of that in Annapolis, Maryland, um, where, where the students aren't even taught to, they teach the class. There's a debate going on about the ideas and the, the things that they're reading. Um, you know, those kinds of things, the sort of Socratic method are, are much, very much more uh, common in the West because they're underpinned by Judeo-Christian, uh, Greco-Roman thought. Uh, and it's just different in the East. Um, yeah. there, are, there are incredibly beautiful and lots of accomplishments um, that the Chinese people and the Chinese culture has given us. Um, paper, calculus, um, you know, uh, I think the compass yeah. <laughs> even comes from China. Uh, and, and there's a long suffering, right? They, they've experienced a lot of humiliation as a culture with being subjugated by Western powers. And they never forgot that. I mean, Shanghai is, was carved up uh, like a turkey. There's a friend that the French and the British and, you know, um, there were there's been a lot of um, a lot of malign influences where you could argue they could be uh, in, per in perpetuity, very racist and very prejudiced against these um, colonizing powers. Um, and these days, you know, it's those colonizing powers who are now on the receiving end of some of that. Um, because China has gotten so big and so powerful economically that it's able to throw its weight around a lot. And I think that's very gratifying for China, young Chinese who um, have had a ringside seat to an economy that has just exploded in their, in their very short lifetimes, um, where, where just in 30 years, you had people go from abject poverty to a decent um, a decent lower middle class way of life. I mean, that's incredible. That's a lot of change. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. say every time you, you know, I've, I haven't been back to China since 2019. Every time you, you, a year goes by, like so much has changed. And I remember talking to some of my colleagues who had been away, you know, they might've visited every six months, but five or six years and they don't recognize the country. You know, there's so many extra, so much extra infrastructure and technology and new ways of thinking. So, um, but Xiaoyan uh, and I uh, definitely differed in terms of our independent streaks. <laughs> um, that may be the case because I'm a little bit of a cowgirl. Uh, and pretty headstrong and stubborn. And I was like, you know, we, we definitely, um, we, we definitely had some stubborn moments. Uh, I don't think I always handled our particular interactions very graciously. I did not extend a lot of grace for 
her fears and didn't take them seriously. Um, this, this was a, uh, this kind of came to, to blow. I don't want to say blows because nobody, nobody was injured in the making of the, the TV that we made, but we had, a, we had, we came up against some situations where we had to sort of talk our way through authority telling us, you know, go around again, go around again. It usually had to do with traffic and security. Yeah. And, um, and uh, she didn't cotton to my uh, ways <laughs> of uh, going around things. And I didn't cotton to her ways of not figuring out a way to go around those things. So I didn't have to. <laughs> so um, to what extent that's a Chinese characteristic and what extent that's uh, our, our differences, I don't want to make it purely one or the other, but um, I do think uh, that as the Chinese would say, I may very well have lost face with her because I was confrontational on occasions when she really needed grace and understanding. Wow. That wasn't the right way to handle it. Well, there's a lot of self-awareness there. Uh, you're definitely someone that strikes me as uh, someone who's still in formation and learning new things. Yeah. And your own way of seeing the world and, and connecting with others at that point was also evolving. Your life and roles were evolving, specifically as a wife and a mother. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I <clears throat> put off marriage and motherhood quite a bit for my crazy adventures. Um, and when it finally did happen, um, I have just really grown to enjoy the company of other women and mothers and talk to them more about how they see the world and where they are, especially when I travel to a new place. And that's a, a tenant I talk about in the book that that's something I really encourage people, you know, bring your whole self into the culture and ask people what they're seeing based on their gender and their roles and whether or not their parents, um, because the, um, the way a, a mom in particular looks at education and business and, um, and the future of, a, a, in this case, young country is really fascinating because they're so identified with what they want for their kids. And um, I had a lot of good conversations with Hanin, our um, translator fixer, who is the mom of two young kids. She married a, a, a Dutch guy would come over to work. And so, you know, they were raising a trilingual household. They all spoke English as well. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, I just encourage people to think about those roles. I didn't always bring all of myself to these stories. And as my, as other parts of my identity started to develop, I really found some peace in bringing that along and realizing, you know, <clears throat> I'm probably now more like my viewers and the people reading my work than I was before I experienced this part of life. And it's important to connect with the people in my stories over those issues, as well as connect um, with the readers and the viewers in that way. Um, I don't know why, but I, I'm very protective of my family life and I don't ever want to wear it on my sleeve, but it's definitely improved my journalism and my life incredibly. I can't imagine not being a mom. It's hard, but it's, um, I don't want to give you some cliche, like it's so rewarding. It's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard. Um, but I'm grateful because I, they are making me be better. They are making me think more about when I'm gracious and when I'm not. I want, I want you to, to um, uh, your next book or writing project, <laughs> I want it to be like a sitcom or maybe a, 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 a comedy movie of that um that that 
chapter where you were trying to get a visa or change your visa because you wanted to go on the trip. Uh, Oy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you were yeah. juggling like so many different things, like from what they were like poopy diapers involved and there, you know, yeah. traffic, DC traffic. And I, it just, was I had to sit down and write about it afterwards just to process it. I just like lived through the 20, 24 to 48 hours of craziness. Yeah. 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 Um, more prayer, more prayer throughout more the day. Prayer. Yep. <laughs> so. Yep. Keep some sanity in there. Yeah. I did. I felt like it, I was in a movie in yeah. like, um, and that um, people will have to read the book to find out more about that. But suffice it to say, getting a, um, getting your passport back from the Chinese embassy is really tough. <laughs> yeah. So and it sent me on an adventure. <laughs> I have more of a philosophical question, but it, there's cultural relevance here. As a journalist, your it seems like your you have a very clear focus on on seeking the truth and telling the truth, right? So does truth exist and can it be known? And I have follow-up questions based on how you answer that. It does, it can be known. I do uh, often use this illustration though, which is um, here's truth. You could look at it from here. I could look at it from here. We're not gonna see exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean you have a truth and I have a truth. I disagree with that frame, framing of it. Um, because that sort of personalizes it. And I think truth is outside of us. I yeah. think um, for me, God, God is the arbiter of truth. Um, and so I wouldn't presume to think I know all of the truth and I'm still trying to discover the truth. And I'm, I, I think this is a really important question for today and how we get information. And, I, and I'm struggling with it. Like I don't have a lock on, on it all, but I, I think it's important to read everything with some skepticism. And if you find something sort of resonating with some of your previously held beliefs, maybe be even more skeptical. Yeah. So truth, having worked for a Chinese government owned media company, how do you think different cultures view, view the idea of truth? Differently. Yes, they do. They do. Yeah. Well, yeah. let me bring it, bring it home then. How do you think a character like Donald Trump affected our own culture's notion of truth? Yeah. Uh, he injected a lot of marketing and sales tactics into our concept of truth. Um, we got a lot of advertising and I think it made it um, difficult. I'm not going to universally condemn his presidency, um, even as a journalist, uh, and many journalists have, um, and that's okay too. But I think that um, there were things there were things that he did that you couldn't even see because the messaging was so disorganized or bad um, or uh, just not calibrated or obfuscating that um, you couldn't even see when he accomplished something good <clears throat> um, or his administration accomplished something good. And that has a lot more to do, I think, with the person of the former president uh, and his need to be in control of everything and his narcissism um, around identity. Um, I'm, I'm pretty certain that if he had a, a better sense of his own accountability to a higher power, there would be a little more humility in how he <clears throat> talks about himself and others. And I think that was sorely lacking. Yeah. Yeah. There's no mooring, you know, sort of eternal mooring. Yeah. I mean, again, this it's hard, right? Because yeah. you never know somebody's heart. And I know people who are convinced that he does know a higher power. 
Um, I was not convinced of that myself, but I didn't have a, you know, I'm not talking to the guy every day. Um, <clears throat> you get, you get some questions, you get to ask him a few questions. You don't know his heart. I think there's only one entity that knows his heart and that's God. So that's between the two of them. But I don't, I do think that it was very hard to see truth and understand truth in the moment in particular, because there wasn't a coordinated message. And that's a ma- function of management at a White House. There yeah. wasn't management um, under the Obama. I can only compare it to the Obama administration, but you would have a rollout. You would have strategic leaks. Then you would have background calls. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, there was so now you could say, listen, wild cowgirl, you don't probably like being led around like that. And, you know, part of me didn't. So there was some excitement. And for a lot of us, there was a tremendous amount of excitement covering Trump because it wasn't planned. But on the other side, as, as a nation and as um, allies and partners, and even as adversaries, you kind of want to know a little bit about something to expect, especially from a country as important strategically, militarily, and economically as the United States. So you can't just go all America first when, with, when you're actually leading the world in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair way to put it, although I will say that you have a more forgiving or, or gracious view than I would, even though you, know, you're, you do have fair critiques of the former president. But I, I don't think that he, he, what he thought was any real mystery or his character was any real mystery. I mean, as Christians, we know that he had quite, quite a lot of words. The words flowed out of his heart. We know that to be true yeah. from, from scripture. You know, what you think leads to what you say. What you say leads to what you do. What you do leads to your, your habits and your habits lead to your character. You, you, we can make these deductions and it's not terrible. We're not making uh, incredible jumps. And then to look again, uh, speaking from as one Christian to another, looking through the lens of scripture, we have the Bible talks a great deal about what are virtues and what are not, you know, yeah. what are virtues and what are vices. So just <clears throat> looking through that, I, um, I, I can't, I can't get around the fruit of the spirit. I can't get around these six things, no seven that the Lord hates. I can't get around some of those things that, you know, the former president just doesn't score very well in the Bible's report card. Um, mm. But that, you know, like I said, I, I appreciate where you're coming from because you're, you're being um, fair, uh, not holding back a, a fair criticism, but you're, you're also at the same time um, more um, forgiving, it seems like, than, than, than I would be. Um, well, some of that too is, is because I feel like so many, so many of my brothers and sisters in the media have just, um, they've given up trying to look at him with a fair lens. Yeah. And I think his presidency, um, again, he, there, there was a lot that went wrong, but all of, so much of that has been documented and will continue to be documented. I don't, um, I'm not saying I need to stick up for him, but I do think that, um, we got to a place very quickly where there was no benefit of the doubt and that, and that benefit of the doubt had been traditionally extended to previous occupants of the White House, particularly at the beginning of the administration. We didn't see that. In fact, I saw uncharacteristic teamwork in the press corps and and camaraderie in the press corps because we were all, 
you know, there, there wasn't going to be a strategic leak to the New York Times every so often. <laughs> it wasn't like we knew who was on what team, except, right. you know, I mean, you knew the conservative media was going to probably have a, um, a better benefit. But as a, as at the time, being part of the Chinese media after that campaign, I didn't think I would have any kind of uh, constructive relationship with these people who were spoke so ill and had no engagement bone in their body about China. And yet I really... They wanted to. They wanted to talk to the Chinese people. They wanted to talk to the people who watched our network, and they wanted to engage with me quite a bit. I was really astonished. So I don't know if that was a lack of coordination. <laughs> it could yeah. well have been. Yeah. Um, but I was really surprised, um, and I was. I would be surprised in, um, you know, in off the record conversations with people that worked there at how much they didn't know about China. Huh. That tells you a lot, right? Too, right? It does. It does. Um, in your, in the last chapter of the book, uh, the chapter is called, you don't have to lose your identity to identify with others, which I, I love the concept. And then you expound on that. You say, <laughs> you say toward the end, increasingly our American culture is developing a pattern of behavior where we can no longer disagree agreeably and where differences are characterized with loaded terms. The irony is that in all the name calling and cancel culture, we actually create more distance between ourselves. It's modern day segregation. That's pretty prov provocative. Sorry, yeah, well, that's the way I feel. I think that's what's happening. Yeah, um, yeah. I think we're, we're, we're really, um, we're in ideological camps. We're in generational camps. We're in racial and gender camps. Um, and you know who wins? Nothing good wins out of division. And I'm not gonna go all namby-pamby, let's all unify kumbaya, but listen, like we either have a country or we don't. And the only way we have one is if we all believe that we have a set of ideas here worth fighting for, worth believing in, and worth using to make our country better. And I believe the founders gave us that. So are there things we've done wrong as a country? Are there things we're still doing wrong as a country? Absolutely. Let's talk about it. Let's let's move. Let's let's fix it. Let's get better at what we're doing wrong. But let's not condone condemn the whole idea of the United States of America and say it's a, it's a you know this is a terrible country. It doesn't stand for anything good because yeah. that's not true. You talk to anybody around the world, and there are a lot of people. At least there used to be um, before a certain president who would look at this country and say, gosh, you know, they're doing some things right over there that maybe there's a reason that, you know, they have prosperity and they have, um, they have uh, religious freedoms and they have um, economic freedoms and, and I can start a business and not be loaded up with taxes right before I, um, I walk in the door. Um, and at the same time, I would argue having traveled to other places that have done horrible things as our country has, that we talk about them here. We, we do do them, that's not right, but we do, they, the, but the truth comes out. Abu Ghraib is not something we don't talk about. It's not something we don't know about. Right. And it's not something our children won't learn about. Right, right. We don't have a system where we run away. We, slavery is a horrible scourge on our country. It's not even, the, the founders themselves who owned slaves and yet wrote into the document of the constitution 
um, a way forward towards abolition. I mean, it's in the constitution that all men are created free. If you hold slaves, how do you hold those two ideas in your head? I can't completely answer that, but right. I know that they did. And that gave us a way forward. That gave us something to shoot for. Yeah. That doesn't justify slavery and it doesn't justify the horrors and the, the challenges that have befallen the black community and other minority communities. At the same time, I stand here as a woman um, immigrant of immigrant heritage. And there's an awful lot of things I've gotten to do that a lot of women 50 years ago would not have ever gotten an opportunity to do. Right. We're getting better. We have to hold on to that, that, that thing that says, you know, we're not, America's not a culture. We're an idea, a beautiful mm. idea, an aspirational idea, an idea we don't meet every day. I sound like a politician. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I really like, yeah. And, and we do believe in forgiveness and we do believe um, as a country. And, and I think that where we get it wrong, that where segregation by these camps happens is when we go into this sort of Marxist, uh, I would argue, tendency to just, let's just catalog all the bad things. Let's write them all down. You know, Corey, what have you done wrong? Okay. That defines you. There's no redemption for you. No, we believe in the redemption story, whether we're yeah. religious or not. You know, I had a conversation with um, Danielle Pletka and mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts of the conversation is when she talked about the decade or so that she worked with Jesse Helms. Now, a lot of us think of, you know, there's one or two things that come immediately to mind when we yeah, think of Jesse one. Helms. Yeah, <laughs> one. Pretty much, pretty much. But yeah. she had, you know, he was um, he was more than that. He was more than one position he took or one thing he said in 1964, you know? So to your point, everyone, not, I don't think everyone, but a vast, vast majority of people cannot be defined by one thing they say or one thing they do. So how can we find you information on your book, Crossing the Divide and any of your other work? Uh, you can go to Jessica-Stone. You can go to jessica-stone.com. I have all the information on how to order the book there. It is also on Amazon uh, and you can find it under Crossing the Divide and Google it or search it with my name. Um, there are a couple other Jessica Stones, but I think you'll find it immediately if you put crossing the divide in there. Um, and then I, yeah, I catalog all the other things I'm, I'm doing and, and try to write when I have time on some things that are gnawing at me or things that are stuck in my craw that I have an, um, some thoughts on, <clears throat> kind of put it out there and see what people think. Uh, and I also have an opportunity on the website to uh, tell me your cross-cultural stories. I would love to continue learning with you from you. Um, tell me your challenges, your victories, your triumphs, your funny stories of misunderstandings. They're all uh, part of informing. And I, I think there's nothing like, um, I don't know, I just, a, a good glass of wine and some of those like, hey, I made this huge mistake in how I talked to this person or, you know, what hand I used to eat. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, uh, we are, there's, there's, I, I love how different we are. I mean, it can drive you crazy, but our, our world is full of so much difference and uniqueness. And um, this talking about it is a chance to celebrate it. Jessica-stone.com. The book is Crossing the Divide. And last but not least, compassion.com and fca.org. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Compassion International is a wonderful ministry that makes sure that um, kids in developing countries have an education and a hot meal in the middle of the day. Uh, also provides help with their families. I've been supporting them since I was 14, so a lot of time. Um, and you get to develop a personal relationship with a, somebody that you sponsor and watch them grow into adulthood and you're part of their story. And um, that's really, really cool. And then fca.org is Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, they are also building into young people, specifically high school and college athletes. And that's a ministry that's very close to the heart of my husband, who is a former college athlete. And, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of great qualities are taught in athletics. And, um, so we want to support that. Cool. So jessica-stone.com book is crossing the divide and the nonprofits are fca.org and compassion.com. Jessica Stone, you're the best. This is this is a ton of fun. It's always fun hanging out with you. And I, and I hope we do it a ton, uh, a lot more in the future because uh, you feel yeah. like family. You do too, Corey. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.